Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp. In this episode, we talk to Bree Newsom-Bass about her article, Black Cops Don't Make Policing Any Less Anti-Black. Bree Newsom-Bass is an award-winning artist and activist known for her historic act of civil disobedience when she removed South Carolina's Confederate flag in 2015. She wrote the article as part of Abolition for the People, a series brought to you by a partnership between Kaepernick Publishing and Level. She speaks with five individuals from the Common Good Collective. Check the show notes for a link to the article and bios. Greg Jarrell starts off the conversation. So Bree, you have sent us a piece of writing that you did about police reform and defunding the police and the, the work that's happening around the country in that area. It's been sent out to our readership around the country, uh, and we're encouraging folks to engage with one another personally with that. And so we want to talk with you a little bit about it to enrich those conversations. This is the Common Good Collective. You know, that language of common good, we're trying to harken back to the time before every square inch of the world was owned and titled to individuals, right? Um, the, the idea of the commons being based in land and based in the shared ownership, community cultivation of land. And so one of the first things that jumped out to me in the essay that we read was how you continually return to this idea of policing and property and the way that the two are related. And so I thought it'd be a good place for us to begin talking today. One of the prime examples was following some of the protests in Atlanta in the aftermath of the, the series of police killings that we saw uh, in the summer of 2020. There was an exhortation to people to go home and leave the property alone. So let's just jump in right there. The relationship between policing and property and how those two things are reinforcing one another in ways that aren't helping to build the common good. And before I, I even begin, I want to encourage everybody. So that essay that I wrote, that was part of a collection called Abolition for the People that was um, assembled by uh, Kaepernick Publishing and, and Medium and Level Mag. So I would encourage everybody to like read the series of essays. It's like, it's really great just kind of like going into a lot of things on this subject. But yes, I mean, what I was trying to get to the heart of was like how you really can, especially in the history of the United States of America, you can't separate policing from property relations from race relations because those things are all intertwined you know one of the the main things that people like myself are constantly lifting up is that i tend to identify the central issue as being one of dehumanization and the fact that we live in a culture that equates human life to property and when you're talking about black human life oftentimes property is valued as more than right and so this idea that you know especially if you're talking about a situation in atlanta or whether it was you know missouri or minneapolis i mean you could name so many different ones that's just in the past few years that's not even going back to you know uh, riots that were sparked by police violence in the past. This idea that, you know, that the focus is so much on how do we protect property? How do we secure the property? Justifying uh, the use of further escalation of violence from the police and the protection of the property, right? As opposed to saying, well, why do these police killings keep happening? How do we address, you know, the the racism that is so baked into the institution, right? And And again, just the fact that culturally, that is, in the history of this country at least, completely rooted in slavery, right? Um, and, and the function of police to not only protect white inanimate property, 
but to relate to Black people as property as well. That piece of our history where Black people were property, you know, really adds to the, the legacy of trauma that is brought into all of these relations. Part, part of what I think that defunding the police is asking us to do is, is inciting our imaginations. If we could create a world where uh, communities that could be healthy enough that we didn't need police, then what might that look like? So what do you think? What For you, what's that world look like that, that we're moving towards without the police? Yeah, and I, and I think it's both those things. I think it is, on one hand, addressing the ways that policing as an institution actually harms our community, but then also just looking at this question of, well, what is public safety, right? And how do we address public safety in ways that don't involve policing or certainly reduce the use of things like that? And I mean, one of the obvious ones is housing. I mean, that's, you know, the social instability that is created by the lack of housing, I think, continues to be understated. I think that the pandemic has really shown how much uh, housing is not just economic issue, but also a public health issue, right? Not just in terms of like people needing a place to shelter to protect themselves from exposure to COVID, but people, do they have safe housing? People might be living in situations that are not safe. So there's just like a number of layers to that. Investing in education. I mean, we know that. There's no way that you can have a situation where the local budget for policing are like multiple times the amount that you put in education and then be surprised that you end up with more people being funneled into prisons, uh, you know, than improving the quality of life. And then mental health care. I mean, that's a huge one. A lot of the incidents that we are seeing involving police are actually like mental health crises. Like a lot of times, you know, it's like a family member's in a mental health situation and they don't know what to do and they call authorities and police come out, police who have no real training on dealing with something like that and they escalate and it turns violent. And so I think the whole thing about defunding the police that some people miss either genuinely or they're willfully ignoring is that it's not just talking about let's just clear out the police departments and do nothing else. We're saying we need other strategies and let's start by trying to prevent a lot of these issues that are coming up with, with reinvesting and reprioritizing the budget. In some of the work that you and I have done together here in Charlotte um, with changing the way our neighborhoods look, Mm -hmm. the places where we see the the most investment in policing are the places where we've seen the least investment in sustainable, affordable neighborhoods. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those two things go hand in hand. And again, it kind of goes back to property relations, you know? Exactly. So I'm going to invite some other folks to join us. Hey, Bree, it's Courtney Napier. So two of the killings that sparked a lot of the protests over the summer involved Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And in both of those instances, there was a type of policing being exacted on folks that was very connected to property. Ahmaud Arbery was seen walking in, in a construction site where a home was going up. White neighbors felt like he wasn't supposed to be there and of following him and eventually murdering him. And then with Breonna Taylor, after she was killed, it came out that her neighborhood was a property that the city government was looking to to begin to build new things and get rid of some of the old structures and so forth. I know this isn't lost on you and the work that you all are doing. And I would love if you could just explain a little bit about how these things happen and how like the interaction between city government and police and this whole idea of gentrification. Yeah, absolutely. So it's both the overvaluing of property 
and the devaluing of human life. And of course, what's all tied up in that is profit. And you know, how, how are we going to, to profiteers? A lot of these communities that are being gentrified, first of all, I think it's important to recognize this is like a generational thing. So like in Charlotte, for instance, you know, we're dealing with hyper gentrification happening right now. This is not the first time that we've that we've dealt with this an urban renewal project. And what you end up with is this cycle of essentially the way that city planning works is that they concentrate populations in certain areas. It's not a coincidence that the communities are racially segregated and economically segregated and the places where the majority of Black people live um, have the least amount of uh, access to resources and are more likely to be exposed to environmental hazards. And then the policing where that kind of comes in is police are used essentially to contain the social fallout. How do you prevent people from easily moving about the city or you're just trying to kind of socially control a population? That's where the police force, like the actual state sanctioned police force kind of figures into that. But then on top of that, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about cases like Ahmad Arbery, uh, which also had echoes of cases like Trayvon Martin, where you have private citizens essentially acting as their own police force and feeling entitled to do so. I mean, that history goes back a long way. I think one of the places you could at least trace it to would be like the Fugitive Slave Act. They essentially deputized every white citizen to participate in the role of, you know, policing black people. And so that culture still kind of carries over today this idea like, oh, this person doesn't belong in this area. You know, we, we see him and it's obviously this young black guy. We don't feel like he's supposed to be in this area. And we feel empowered to use violence against him and to police him on our own. And of course, part of the reason why people feel empowered to do that is because throughout the history, the legal system has supported them in that. Again, like this whole connection between race, property relations, property values, deliberately devaluing property wherever Black people live, and, you know, increasing the value wherever white people live is all, again, like just part of the, the way that the whole capitalist system works. <laughs> and, and again, I mean, I know that's an even longer conversation, but the fact is that you really can't separate race class dynamics from the way that the entire economy was structured, because again, it was fundamentally organized around slavery. And I think it continues to impact us in that same way today, maybe even more than people really want to acknowledge. I mean, this was not long, slavery was not long ago, even though people say it was, it really was not. You've been listening to The Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. This is a poem from Maya Angelou. It's called, On the Pulse of Morning. A rock, a river, a tree, host to species long since departed, marked the mastodon, the dinosaur, who left dried tokens of their sojourn here on our planet floor. Any broad alarm of their hastening doom is lost in the gloom of dust and ages. But today, the rock cries out to us clearly, forcefully. Come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. As we return, Shannon continues the conversation by asking Bri a question about the land, plantations, penitentiaries, and trauma. One of the things you, you mentioned in your writing was in Mississippi and Louisiana that some of the 
state penitentiaries are located on former plantations. Sort of connected to that is this idea that, you know, in certain neighborhoods where there's just been generations of lack of economic opportunity and lack of education opportunities tied to the housing values, they've just been generationally at a disadvantage. With the extreme example of the the plantation turning into a penitentiary, I'm just curious, when you think about the intergenerational trauma and sort of the foundational wounds that, that land holds, what is transforming something like that? What does that look like? What might that process be? Like how, what, what's a way out of that? And I really think that we can't separate the history of the land from its present incarnation. It matters. It matters that Louisiana penitentiary was formerly a plantation. That's not a coincidence. There's a direct history there. So when we talk about like, how are we going to transform the land? How are we going to transform institutions? I think it has to be like a history conscious process, a process that's informed by history, but is also very intentional about what it is that that we are aiming towards. So for instance, if we say like we are going to abolish prisons, uh, we have to look at how the prison system as it exists today, essentially became a replacement for the slave labor system. You know, there was a period of time, obviously, we had like reconstruction where we got the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments, you had black people being elected to Congress, you had, you know, the building of historically black colleges and universities. And then there was a backlash to that there was a calculated backlash of create developing Jim Crow segregation and creating the lost cause myth, and using the prison system as kind of like the replacement for creating cheap labor. And that kind of became the new norm. So I think we have to look at that and we have to ask ourselves, like, what does it mean to have human rights? I mean, obviously one of the major issues with prison is there's a whole lot of people locked up who should not be locked up at all. And we clearly see people who are privileged committing blatant crimes, including people who are in elected office and they're never held accountable. But even that issue aside, like let's let's look at situations where somebody actually commits harm against someone else, like in a real way in the community. How do we deal with that in a way that is not so replicating that same violence? That's part of the question, you know? Um, And again, I would encourage people to like really study, like I don't consider myself like a foremost abolitionist, right? Like I am somebody who is also learning, going through this process with everybody else. Um, So I would really encourage people to study more about it because these are the types of things that people are theorizing around. Hey Bree, my name is Demetrius Edwards. I'm from Oakland, California. So glad to have this opportunity to have this conversation. You know, as you were writing about police departments and public safety, as it pertains to police in particular, I'm from Oakland. I know that my neighborhood is policed a little bit different. Um, There's a propensity to protect property and not really serve and protect people. How can we change the narrative knowing the power of police unions and how their money is able to shape policy? How can we get to the heart of policy change, no matter who's the face of the system, knowing that the system itself is one of oppression? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it goes to a conversation that is really at the forefront right now about representation and like the power of representation, but also the limitations of representation. Like just because you have a face at the head of the institution doesn't mean that the institution has really changed. It continues to be anti-Black. It continues to attack poor people. The solution is that we have to push for those systemic changes. Like it's not enough to just put a Black face on the front of it, unless that person is talking about defunding the police and restructuring, then, you know, nothing has really changed. And part of what I was trying to point out in that is also the ways that representation is weaponized. Because what you see a lot of times is people are like, how can the police be racist? The police chief is Black. How can it be imperialism? The president is Black. Clearly, we've turned a corner. The country can't be racist anymore because we've elected this Black person. And it really ignores what you're talking about with, with that kind of logic is say, like, let's just look at this individual person in this individual position and ignore the general conditions of the majority of people. While, yes, you know, representation, it does matter. It's not that it's not that representation doesn't matter at all or that you don't want to look at like personnel and like, you know, who is in the position, but the real metric should not be how many black people do you have on the force alone, but like how many black people are you arresting (laughs) still? Right. How, how is the bail being set? Like, like those are the kinds of metrics that we need to look at. And a lot of times, of course, people who are trying to kind of preserve the status quo, they want us to look away from that and just say, Oh, look during, you know, diversity hiring. So everything is, is fine. It seems like there's a constellation of themes that are coming up here for me around exile and belonging and ownership. You noted in your article about how grabbing the badge and joining the force was a rite of passage for European immigrants. I, I guess my, my big question is, have you done any thinking about how to engender a sense of collective ownership of the land? Whew, that's, I mean, that that's a really great question. I feel like that is like so central to the question of decolonization, right? Because especially in the United States, first of all, we're talking about a land that displaced the native people. So that's like the original story of the land um, when we're talking about like building a collective. And so then what does it mean to build a collective uh, ownership of the land with everybody who is here now? Um, And that will take radical transformation, obviously, because you know, we're coming out of a cultural tradition where a few people own and everybody else either rents or is alienated in some type of way from being an owner. Uh, You know, you're either like a worker or a laborer of of some sort, or you're contained (laughs) um, in some other kind of way. I don't have an answer for that. I feel like that is the central question that is confronting us at this point, especially when you look at recent events where we are, I mean, this country is deeply divided. We just had an insurrection attempt. I mean, I would argue we have an ongoing insurrection attempt. I don't think this has really been resolved at this point. And I think that that has been an underlying issue of the country itself from its foundation. What is that strong uniting identity? What is that that brings all of these people from various cultures and languages and ethnicities and races, you know, around kind of the common good, right? Or like, or like the commons, like you're talking about. I think that is the central question. And in a way that addresses those original injustices, we have to address the injustice of slavery. We have to address the injustice that has been done to the indigenous people of of this land. And I, I think that any conversation around like what happens with the land has to begin there. That's where like the greatest resistance in terms of political will is at. But that's the conversation that I think 
we have to have. And then from there, that's how we determine what does it mean to be a citizen. I really deeply believe in the idea of a human rights-based democracy. So even like moving beyond this idea of like, I'm a citizen because I've gotten this paperwork from the government, but like I am entitled to rights because I'm a human being. Like I, I think that we need to kind of move towards a constitutionally based government that defines citizenship in those terms, as opposed to like who's received documentation. It's a long, <laughs> it's a long process ahead of us, but I think that's like the question of the 21st century. This has been a rich and dense conversation. Uh, so we thank you for joining us. Bree, your work has inspired so many, both locally here in Charlotte, uh, now in Raleigh and North Carolina, but also around the country. And so we're grateful for you and we want to encourage you. Um, oh, I appreciate it. You're out there being bold. Thanks for listening. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. Be sure to find the link to the article and bios in the show notes. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.